Hello, I'm Peter Van Dusen, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Hello, I'm Peter Van Dusen, and this is Primetime Politics on CPAC. The House of Commons is on a constituency week, which means parliamentarians are mostly back in their ridings, but there's still lots to tell you about tonight. Coming up, the latest on the spread of the COVID-19 virus and the number of cases in Canada on the rise. And as the country faces continuing conflict over resource development, climate change and Indigenous rights, the Prime Minister appeals for a national consensus on a way forward. We'll hear from Justin Trudeau in a speech in Toronto earlier today. And we'll begin with some measures of progress made in the battle over resource development and Indigenous rights after a tentative agreement reached this weekend in British Columbia. After four days of talks, the federal and B.C. governments and the hereditary chiefs of the Wet'suwet'en First Nation agreed on a proposal to acknowledge land title rights for hereditary leaders established by the courts more than 20 years ago. We... I believe have uh, come uh, to a uh, proposed arrangement uh, that uh, that will uh, also honor the the protocols of the uh, of the Wasotan um, people and clans and uh, obviously that that what we've worked on this weekend needs to go back to those clans and then uh, we have we have uh, agreed that as ministers we will come back to sign um, in uh, if if it, it meet is agreed upon um, by by the nation. It is uh, it is building um, on the Supreme Court decision. It is uh, it is about rights and title um, throughout the Yenta, and it is about making sure, as Chief Wa said, that this never happens again. Um, that the rights holders. Uh, um, and will will always be at the table, and uh, and and that is the way through for for Canada. Um, if we continue to to move on what the Prime Minister has said on the recognition of rights, respect, cooperation, and partnership, and that's the way forward. Uh, it's, it was an interesting and powerful three days for myself, and I know for all of us. Uh, there's, it's been 23 years, it's been mentioned, since the Delgamuk gesteewe decision, uh, and there has been little or no uh, progress towards recognizing the rights and title of the Wet'suwet'en people since that time. And in three days, uh, I've never seen a more uh, productive and respectful table that has uh, moved us to an arrangement that uh, it will go to, go to the Wet'suwet'en people to uh, review and, uh, and, and decide to endorse, I, I hope, and, uh, and that'll move us forward in a way to bring certainty, clarity for the Wet'suwet'en people and for all British Columbians, and, uh, and it's, it's well overdue. But the deal must still be approved by the Wet'suwet'en people, and it certainly didn't clear the protests and rail blockades of solidarity across the country for the past three weeks. In fact, a new rail blockade went up in Montreal this afternoon, and the hereditary chiefs opposed to the gas pipeline say they'll continue to oppose it. We always maintained and we always say that uh, we, were, we are against the uh, pipeline uh, that's going through our territory. And um, we've uh, expressed that to uh, the ministers from BC. Um, although uh, the um, information has, has surfaced that um, 
the permits and, and all of that has has already been there and, and um, we, we, we are aware of that. So um, with that matter, we, uh, we're going to be continuing to look at um, uh, some more conversations with uh, BC and uh, of course with the uh, proponent and uh, to further our conversation with uh, the RCMP out on the territory. Uh, it's, it's not over yet. We're just looking at uh, more, uh, um, more work in, in that area. So um, the other component that we, we worked on uh, together was uh, the um, uh, rights and title matter. Uh, we've come up with an arrangement um, that, uh, that we've seen as, as uh, probable uh, uh, help and assistance to uh, all parties so that we can um, see the future as, as a better outlook for, for our, our occupation out on the land because uh, this, is, this is what we're all about, is the occupation of the land out there. Uh, we say uh, to uh, all the developers out there, um, our pristine waters, our headwaters, our wildlife habitats, our traditional sites, and, and all these uh, values out there, uh, we are, are going to protect it. With, with everything that uh, with everything that we have and we will continue to do so uh, we will uh, ensure that uh, through this arrangement that it will never happen again so I think um, uh, we're we're at a point in in this uh, moment in time uh, to see if the uh, arrangements will work in, in all sorts or all aspects on, on what, we're, what we stand for as Wet'suwet'en. And um, again, as Wet'suwet'en, we are the land and the land is ours. We'll maintain that right from day one. So the arrangement reached with the Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs over the weekend to acknowledge land title rights doesn't settle the fate of the controversial coastal gasoline pipeline. The hereditary chiefs opposed to the pipeline say they're still opposed to it after this weekend. The company building it says it is resuming construction on the project that had been paused while the weekend talks took place. And one railway blockade, it remains in place near Montreal in support of the Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs. There are some 20 elected band councils we should note, including uh, Wet'suwet'en band councils who have signed agreements in support of the pipeline. Uh, one of those band councils that wants this project to go ahead uh, is the Burns Lake Band. And the elected chief of that band is Dan George, and he's with me in our studio now. Chief George, good to see you. Uh, great, thanks great, for coming to speak with me. Great uh, to see it, you, too. It's good to get your perspective on what's going on here. First of all, start by telling me a little bit about the band and, and the people you represent, and, and about the pipeline. Does it, will it pass through your territory? Yes, it does pass through our territory. But uh, Wet'suwet'en territory only covers half of our traditional territory. The other half of our traditional territory is um, Karasakani. So where the pipeline actually runs is Karasakani land. Okay. Uh, tell me about the people you represent. And are, are some of the members of the Burns Lake Band, some are uh, Wet'suwet'en? Yes. Is that right? 
Okay. Yes. And okay, so as you watch this conversation, uh, which has sort of uh, monopolized the national debate here uh, for all kinds of different reasons, about this pipeline, about some of the blockades and protests, what have you been thinking as you watch this conversation unfold? Well, a lot, lot of it is um, that our voices aren't being heard, and, and uh, what hereditary chiefs have been having uh, clan meetings, but we haven't been invited to any of those clan meetings. They're choosing and picking who support them to come to these meetings. So we need to have all of our membership uh, included in some of these meetings, and how do we do that? Because we have members that live all across the province and all across the country, so how do we include them as their voices need to be heard also? So, so you, th you think, that what that the 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 voices of those who want this project and and who have a have a, a who want to have a say and, and have had a say in this project are are not being heard. Yes, there, I I believe that uh, most of our, our Wet'suwet'en people are not being heard, and uh, they're scared to go to those fe feast halls because they get bullied, and so we need them to have a voice somehow in uh, in all of this, and we all need to decide together as Wet'suwet'en people. Okay, uh, why do you want this pipeline? Because uh, it gives us a lot of benefits for the Burnsike band and uh, the whole community of Burnsike because we're a logging, logging town and we have the mountain pine beetle in the northern BC that's devastated 80% of all of our pine in BC so logging's going down quite a bit so um, either we're gonna live in a ghost town pretty soon or we need some other economic development to try and keep this uh, thriving communities, especially in small communities. Okay, and, and, and what, what difference will actually, you know, you, you talk about, uh, I suppose, the declining economy of, of your town. Um, what difference will this pipeline make? Well, Specifically, it, do you tell me about the benefits it will bring to your band. Well, right now we've got uh, language programs going on because of some of the benefits that we already have received. So we can hire people to re revitalize our language. We've got a lot of social cultural activities going on. We built star blankets. Uh, they're uh, making moccasins right now. So we're doing a lot of cultural stuff that we couldn't do before because we didn't have the money to do it. So we're introducing our culture and cultural activities back into our communities. Okay, um, we had this agreement on the weekend, a tentative agreement to, to uh, have the governments of BC and, and the federal government uh, work to finally recognize land title rights. Uh, what do you know about the details of the agreement? Because we're hearing it, it'll have to be uh, considered by all of the Wet'suwet'en people decide whether or not uh, they want it. Uh, do you expect to be included in those conversations or the, or the people that you represent? Are you expecting them to be included in the conversations of what this tentative deal means? Well, I would hope so because it's, it's part of our land also as being a Beaver Clan member and through the Beaver House, it's part of our tradition also. So we need to be included. I haven't seen the agreement yet, so I'm not sure what's in it or what's involved in it. Okay, so if, if there's an agreement, and that sounds like what this is, to, to recognize the land title rights, in particular of hereditary uh, chiefs, um, what do you think of that? What, Im what impact could that make if that relationship as uh, you know, was essentially decided by the courts 23 years ago that this needed to be recognized and dealt with. Um, what impact do you think that will have on the decision-making process? Because for a lot of Canadians watching, that's what this has become. It's become a, a question of who gets to decide, hereditary chiefs or elected band councils? 
Well, I'm totally willing to work with the hereditary chiefs. And through Delegate Muck said, you had to create this governance system. They have created six chairs for elected chiefs. I'm not quite sure where the six chair is from, but there's five of us that have signed on, and they're supposed to create a governance system through that, but we have never been uh, involved in creating this governance system in the last 25 years since Delegamuk started. Okay, but to, to the fundamental question, uh, can you have a system? Uh, here we are today. Who should be making decisions on these kinds of projects, elected band councils or hereditary chiefs? Well, I think we all need to work together as, as a nation. So all Wet'suwet'en Nation need to come together and decide everything together. Okay, so these, these uh, hereditary chiefs who oppose the pipeline, uh, they want to block it, they want it stopped, they don't want it to go ahead. Uh, should that happen? Well, they, they're like us elected chiefs. Uh, we got to do what our members tell us to do, and they got to do what their clan tells them to do because the clan is different than what us elected chiefs do because us elected chiefs represent everybody, doesn't matter what clan they're from, uh, but we represent everybody and don't discriminate against anybody. So, and, and when you have a hereditary chief, they look after one clan, like I'm a beaver clan, so one mm -hmm. of the hereditary chiefs is my chief. The way I've heard it explained is that the hereditary chiefs along the pipeline route in Wet'suwet'en territory, they're responsible for the whole territory. Whereas an elected chief such as yourself, you're responsible for that parcel of land that involves your First Nation. And they have a, they have a wider responsibility to protect the land. Is that the right interpretation? Yes, that, that is totally the right interpretation. But if, if you look at it, uh, elected chiefs have been in, in politics since the Indian Act, 1876. So we've ruled um, a lot, lot of the stuff that's going on and we've created that space for hereditary systems to be recognized through the Guerin case and the Calder case, Sparrow case, you, you, mm -hmm. can, you can name off a whole bunch of court cases that uh, elected chiefs have fought for title and rights in their uh, communities so that the hereditary chiefs do have a say on what we do. So if, if, if the hereditary chiefs who oppose this pipeline project are not satisfied and they continue to oppose it, do you expect that they'll be able to block this project? And is that okay with you if it's, if it's blocked because they've decided they don't want it and that's what they've said? No, I, I would go with all the Wet'suwet'en members to have a voice and have their concerns and whatever outcomes that come from everybody's voice being heard is what I'll go with. You've also expressed some concerns about um, the way this debate has blown up in the last three weeks to a month and what some of the online uh, comments we've seen and uh, you suggested to me just before we started that it, it, that it may have set the relationship back several decades. Uh, tell me about that. Well, um, a lot of our children are starting to get bullied and uh, uh, discriminated against in, in some of the schools in northern communities. And we have a lot of really small communities, under 10,000 people, so you can really see it and it's really relevant for us and, and it's not, not good for our children. And that's who we need to protect is our children. Okay, so... How do you see the way out of this conflict then, where we are in this, on this, back to this pipeline issue? You, you think there's a way forward that brings all voices to the table and still comes to a decision that supports the construction of the coastal gasoline pipeline? I would, yes. And uh, I, I believe that uh, we need the economy in northern BC because, as I said, stated before, that the logging industry is going down and there's uh, 
not much left for our small communities in northern British Columbia because of the mountain pine beetle epidemic that's happened over the last 20 years. Let me finish on that. Let, let me come. I, I, your band and six other First Nations in northern BC recently signed a partnership uh, agreement with the BC government for forestry uh, projects in those territories. Now, is that an agreement that could be jeopardized if hereditary chiefs were to object to it? I believe that agreement, uh, which is called Pathways uh, 2.0, uh, will not be affected because we've already passed it and signed it off through the governments. Um, we don't, do not have any forestry agreements yet, but we're still negotiating on getting tenure and trying to get forestry agreements. Um, so you don't think that could get caught up in a process about who decides what will be done with that land, the hereditary chiefs, or elected band councils such as yourself? No, I, I believe that that one's written in stone with the provincial government and it can't be broken whether or not the pipeline goes through. Because when we negotiated with the Liberals, and I'd like to put it out there also that with the Liberal government, we have in our agreement that they cannot convert that gas line into an oil line. Because we we're adamant that we are not signing until you put that in our agreement that you cannot convert that into oil there. because nobody wants oil. Mm -hmm. All right, Chief Dan George, uh, thank you so much for coming in today and to give us your perspective on uh, the latest developments. Good to talk to you. Thank you for inviting me. Well, the ongoing conflict over Indigenous rights, resource development and climate change has exposed some deep divides in this country. One major resource project, the Tech Frontier Oil Sands Mine, was abandoned earlier this month after the company behind it cited the need to reconcile resource development and climate change and that Canada hasn't done that yet. Today, the Prime Minister appealed to business, politicians, Indigenous groups, and all Canadians to help define his plan to cut carbon emissions by finding common ground. He's promising broad consultations in the year ahead to make that happen. Here's Justin Trudeau speaking earlier today to the Prospectors and Developers Association of Canada. Before we get into things, I want to take a moment to talk about the coronavirus. I know people are concerned. I want to assure everyone that our health officials and professionals are working tirelessly to keep Canada and Canadians safe. Our government is taking a multi-departmental approach through our incident response group, which has been meeting regularly. We're basing our responses on the best science and evidence available, and we continue to monitor global developments, both in terms of health and on the economy. Toronto learned a lot in coping with the SARS outbreak back in 2003, and we're applying many of those hard-earned lessons. We will continue to do everything necessary to keep Canadians safe and ensure up-to-date information so you can keep your families safe. I've been very much looking forward to this event because it highlights the kind of future that Canadians are building right across the country. A future where innovation creates good jobs for people where we grow the economy while protecting our environment. A future where Canada is the best place in the world to invest. Mining has long been a fundamental building block of our economy. Mineral production happens in every Canadian province and territory. Workers have often told me, this is the kind of job I can raise a family on the kinds of opportunities that keep our young people in our town, the kinds of projects that lift up entire communities, including many Indigenous communities. 
And that's why our government wants to keep our mining sector strong and growing. We want to attract new investments to keep good jobs here, create new opportunities for workers and business owners alike, and maintain Canada's stellar reputation in this field. But we're meeting at an important point in time. The global economy is rapidly changing. Earlier this year, BlackRock's Larry Fink announced sweeping changes to the fund's investment strategy, recognizing climate change as a defining factor in any company's future. Larry acknowledged that climate change is fundamentally reshaping finance, just as it is causing companies, sectors, and entire countries to reassess their core assumptions about what tomorrow holds. However, even as this reality takes hold, around the world and right here in Canada. The debate between environment and economy is becoming increasingly contentious and polarized. And I think we can all agree that it's unhelpful for polarized views to define the battleground of a debate. To adapt to major disruptions like climate change and seize new opportunities in emerging markets like clean tech, what we need to do is build common ground instead. And that's what I came to talk to you about today. But first, I want to talk about mining, because yours is an industry that already understands that good climate policy is good business. De plus en plus, les investisseurs cherchent à financer des projets dans des endroits où les gouvernements ont mis en, ont mis en place un cadre solide pour concilier le développement des ressources et la lutte contre les changements climatiques. Depuis le début de notre mandat, Notre gouvernement a entrepris des démarches importantes et ambitieuses pour répondre et s'adapter à l'urgence climatique. Nous avons notamment mis un prix sur la pollution. Nous allons bannir les plastiques nocifs à usage unique. Nous investissons dans les technologies propres, la formation des compétences et dans l'innovation. Et nous avons renforcé le processus d'évaluation environnementale pour les grands projets d'infrastructure de façon à ce qu'ils tiennent compte dès le début des perspectives des communautés autochtones et respectent leurs droits. Now, some would have you believe that having a serious plan to fight climate change is bad for business. But let's look at the numbers. Just last week, Statistics Canada reported that foreign direct investment was up 18% compared to the 2018 total. The data shows, yeah, there's an applause there. Yeah. The data shows that more investors are looking to Canada as a great place to invest, and we're already seeing groundbreaking initiatives take shape in our communities. Global aluminum industry leaders, Alcoa and Rio Tinto, shows Saguenay, Quebec, to launch a new, revolutionary smelting process for aluminum with zero greenhouse gas emissions. It actually produces oxygen. <laughs> That's the kind of investment we want to attract. And most of you already know that a thriving mining industry and a thriving natural resource sector don't have to be impediments to fighting climate change. They can not only be part of that fight, but essential partners. In a letter announcing Tech's decision to withdraw the Frontier oil sands project 
CEO Don Lindsay recognized that global capital markets are changing rapidly and investors and customers are increasingly looking for jurisdictions to have a framework in place that reconciles, reconciles resource development and climate change in order to produce the cleanest possible products. The mining industry can not only drive the clean transition, but profit from it. To produce high-density batteries and wind turbines, you need copper, nickel, and cobalt. To build a solar panel, you need 19 metals and minerals. Well, Canada is home to 14 of them. Lorsqu'on parle d'emploi vert ou de la transition écologique, les gens pensent pas toujours au secteur minier, mais c'est une industrie qui a un rôle essentiel à jouer. Vous êtes nombreux dans le secteur à le savoir. Déjà, vous innovez. Vous adoptez des pratiques plus responsables et vous explorez de nouvelles opportunités qui découlent d'une économie plus verte. But to keep our mining sector strong, you need a partner in government that will help you grow and remain competitive on the global market. Our government is that partner. Last year, Last year, right here at PDAC, we, together with so many of you as crucial partners, launched the Canadian Minerals and Metals Plan to raise awareness about the importance of this sector, respond to new challenges facing your industry, and help you seize new opportunities in a changing economy. Yeah, now you can applaud yourselves. That was, a, that was a great initiative and continues to be. The Minister of Natural Resources, Seamus O'Regan, is here to work with you to advance an action plan which will be launched later this year. En même temps, on explore de nouvelles avenues de collaboration avec nos partenaires internationaux. En décembre, le Canada et les États-Unis ont signé un protocole d'entente sur les minéraux de terre rares, rare earth minerals, qui sont essentiels au développement de nouvelles technologies et à la fabrication de produits comme les téléphones intelligents et les ordinateurs. Il nous reste encore du travail à faire à ce niveau-là, mais notre objectif consiste à devenir un fournisseur important de minéraux de terre rares sur le marché mondial. When we talk about exporting rare earth minerals, it's not just about being uh, a present partner, but a reliable source of those minerals that the world so desperately needs. And Canada, as you all know, is that reliable partner. Our government recognizes that moving towards a low-carbon economy is a big adjustment for many industries, including, including yours. And this transformation won't happen overnight. It will take some time, but our government is firmly committed to supporting your industry during this period of change. As people in this room know, electric vehicles are not just for city streets. They are for cleaning mining, cleaner mining operations, which protects the health of workers and the environment. Canada is now home to its first all-electric gold mine, the Borden Mine in Chapleau, Ontario, which our government was proud to support. And Canada's own McLean Engineering of Collingwood has already delivered electric vehicle solutions to nine mines across Canada. But let's be honest, this is only the beginning. 
Our government wants to support this sector in accelerating the use of clean mining trucks here at home. And we know Canadian companies like McLean, like Covaterra of Sudbury and Prairie Machine of Saskatoon can be strong competitors in delivering electric mining vehicle equipment to mines around the world. So today, I am announcing that we will extend the existing zero emission vehicle incentive for businesses to include off-road vehicles like mining fleets. Look at that, a standing ovation, nice. In Canada, Heavy industry accounts for 10% of greenhouse gas emissions. This new incentive will help reduce emissions from transport and help companies save money. When it comes to fighting climate change and safeguarding the environment, our government is unapologetically ambitious. We put a price on pollution right across the country. We will meet and exceed our 2030 Paris targets. And this year, we will begin to work on a plan to achieve net zero by 2050. Now, reaching net zero will take some time. To get this right, we have a lot of work to do with Canadians and with industry leaders. For the good of our economy, for the good of our country, we need to do this well. So we need your input. Transforming our economy for the future is not something one government can or should do alone. We need governments of all orders, and much more than that, we need businesses and industry. This is the common ground I'm talking about. Think about the free trade debate here in Canada in the 1980s. Many of you in the room will remember it well. The 1988 election on free trade with the U.S. was fiercely polarized and polarizing. It broke along political lines, divided families, communities, and the entire country. And yet, barely five years and one change in government later, we expanded Canada-U.S. free trade into NAFTA with very little fuss. And now, of course, we have a strong national consensus across the country and across party lines that trade is good for the economy and good for Canada, which is why we are still the first and only G7 country with a free trade agreement with every other G7 country. We went, we went from a super divided country angsting over a key issue that went to the core of our future, our economy, our, our identity as Canadians. I mean, that 88 election was one of the first elections I was, re well, it wasn't the first election I was conscious of for <laughs> personal reasons, but uh, I was engaged in it as a, as a, as a, young, a young Canadian, focused on this free trade debate that was wrenching us apart. And then, in the mid, early mid-90s, suddenly we were part of NAFTA and there was no debate over it anymore. We knew that trade was essential and free trade was even better. How did we get there? How did we go from an incredibly polarizing debate to us realizing, oh, 
It's not about whether we do it. It's how we do it right. Well, that's exactly the same situation we're in right now, where the debate over climate change, over economy versus environment, is just as polarized, just as divisive. And the voices on the margins of that debate are incredibly loud. But that challenge we face now to reach that consensus that Canadians know needs to be there. That of course we need to protect the environment at the same time as we create good jobs. Of course we can only create a better, stronger economy for everyone if we are fighting climate change at the same time. We know that. Canadians know that. We just haven't reached that point of consensus where we argue about the best way to do it. There are still pockets of this country and the political debate arguing about whether or not to protect the environment. But as we saw from the free trade debate, that can flip fairly quickly. It won't be easy. But we all know, you all know, that's where we need to go. In the coming year, we want to hear from you on how Canada should innovate and transform our economy to keep good jobs here and create new ones. We want to work with you to grow Canada's prosperity by taking carbon pollution out of our environment and out of our economy. This is a big project, and not one that any government can do on its own. We all need to roll up our sleeves and pitch in. Governments businesses, civil society, indigenous communities, and all Canadians. The only way we create a better future is if we do it together. There is no doubt that the global economy and global markets for resources are changing. And for a country like Canada, where the national economy was built on the natural resources sector, there's a big transformation ahead, to be sure. Let's remember, this is Canada. We are incredibly rich in natural resources the world needs, and we always will be. Natural resources will always be a big part of our economy, no matter how much we invest in AI or grow our cities. We just need to transform our approach to meet a challenging future. Now, for the people who've worked in these industries, in some cases for generations, this can seem really daunting. Our government wants to make sure they have the right support. Leading the clean energy transition means rethinking how we harness Canada's resources, not whether or not we harness them at all. It means seeing and meeting the challenges and opportunities before us head on. It means being ready to innovate and collaborate. Canada is uniquely positioned to be the world's cleanest supplier of metals and minerals. And you all have an integral role to play in making this a reality. If industries like yours continue to innovate, if governments work together on a serious plan to protect the environment, if we continue to invest in training and support workers through this economic transformation, I know that together we will absolutely build this better future. Merci beaucoup, mes amis, d'être ici.
Thank you so much. Merci. Hello again, I'm Peter Van Dusen. We've been listening to the Prime Minister speaking at a conference in Toronto today and calling for input from all sectors of Canadian society to find a path forward to consensus on how to fight climate change and set aside the differences that have divided the country. Now we'll shift our attention to the latest news on the COVID-19 outbreak. Here's what we know today. There are now 27 cases in Canada, 18 in Ontario, 8 in British Columbia and 1 in Quebec. The Public Health Agency of Canada says the risk of transmission in this country is still low, even uh, as it prepares for a possible outbreak. There are now more than 89,000 cases around the world. There have been more than 3,000 deaths. The World Health Organization says outbreaks in South Korea, Iran and Italy are of greatest concern, but it still believes the virus can be contained. The number of cases in China uh, continues to decline. And yesterday, China reported 206 cases of COVID-19 to WHO. The law since uh, 22nd January, only eight cases were reported outside Hubei province yesterday. Outside China, a total of 8,739 cases of COVID-19 have been reported to WHO from 61 countries with 127 deaths. In the last 24 hours, there were almost nine times more cases reported outside China than inside China. The epidemics in the Republic of um, uh, Korea, Italy, Iran, and Japan are our greatest concern. I would also like to inform you that a WHO team have arrived in Iran this afternoon uh, to deliver supplies and support the government in the response. I would like to use this opportunity to thank Crown Prince Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed Al Nahyan of the United Arab Emirates for his support in making this mission possible. Shukran Jazilan, Crown Prince. A WHO staff member in our Iran country, of course, uh, has now tested positive for COVID-19 and he has mild uh, disease. The Republic of Korea has now reported more than 4,200 cases and 22 deaths, meaning it has more than half of all cases outside China. However, the cases in the Republic of Korea appear to be coming mostly from suspected cases from the five known clusters rather than the community. That's important because it indicates that surveillance measures are working and Korea's epidemic can still be contained. Knowing and understanding your epidemic is the first step to defeating it. Korea's situation also underlines that this is a unique virus with unique features. This virus is not influenza. We are in uncharted territory. We have never seen before a, resp a, resp a respiratory pathogen that's capable of community transmission, but at the same time, which can also be contained with the right measures. If this was an influenza epidemic, we would have expected to see 
widespread community transmission across the globe by now. And efforts to slow it down or contain it would not be feasible. But containment of COVID-19 is feasible and must remain the top priority for all countries. With early aggressive measures, countries can stop transmission and save lives. We appreciate that people are debating whether this is a pandemic or not. We're monitoring the situation every moment of every day and analyzing the data. I have said it before and I will say it again. WHO will not hesitate to describe this as a pandemic if that's what the evidence suggests. But we need to see this in perspective. Of the 88,913 cases reported globally uh, so far, 90% are, uh, are in China, mostly in one province. Of the 8,739 cases reported outside China, 81% are from four countries. Of the other 57 affected countries, 38 have reported 10 cases or less. 19 have reported only one case. And a good number of cases have already contained the virus and have not reported, reported in the last <coughs> two weeks. We know people are afraid. We know they have many concerns and questions. Is the virus spreading in my community? Will my kids be okay? Will my parents be okay? Is it safe to hold an event? Should I travel? The answers to these questions will vary depending on where you live, how old you are, and how healthy you are. Individuals, families, and communities should follow the advice provided by local health authorities and local health professionals. WHO will continue to provide evidence-based guidance to help countries and individuals to assess and manage their risk and make decisions. There is no one-size-fits-all approach. Different countries are in different scenarios. More than 130 countries have not detected any cases yet. Some just received their first cases yesterday. Some have clusters of cases with transmission between family members and other close contacts. Some have rapidly expanding epidemics with signs of community transmission. And some have declining epidemics and have not reported a case for more than two cases, two, two weeks. I'll repeat this, and some have declining epidemics and have not reported a case for more than two weeks. Some countries have more than one of these scenarios at the same time. For example, China had community transmission in Wuhan, but relatively small numbers of cases in other provinces. Other countries have a similar pattern. 
WHO is advising countries on actions they can take for each of the three CIS scenarios. First case, first cluster, first evidence of community transmission. The basic actions in each scenario are the same, but the emphasis changes depending on which scenario a country is in. Our message to all countries is, this is not one-way street. We can push this virus back. Your actions now will determine the course of the outbreak in your country. There is no choice but act now. I thank you. But many health experts believe the virus has now moved beyond the containment stage and that the spread of COVID-19 is now inevitable. Today, health officials in Ontario, which has seen the most cases so far in this country at 18, brief reporters on the three new cases confirmed today, all of them travel-related, and the latest measures being taken to deal with the virus. Can you clarify something? Are public health officials reaching out to everybody who's come here from Iran in the past couple of weeks? Uh, well, they wouldn't know if they had yet because they haven't put the kiosk update. So the federal government has to put that way. So we've, we've asked people on our media things, if you've come and you have concerns, that you would then uh, notify public health, especially if you self-monitor and identify signs or symptoms. We want to step that forward and ask the people from Iran, if you're coming back in the last 14 days, you would go into self-isolation, you would notify public health and uh, to assess that if you wanted to get testing, how would you do it? How could you go about doing it? Because there may be some issues with language and we have translators available to assist and make it as accessible and amenable as possible to help them in their assessment, personal assessment, because um, they weren't somewhere weren't aware they're exposed when they're in the country. Now they're aware they want to know and they're concerned about their health issues. So we haven't, we don't know if they are yet in the future when the kiosk is up and running and the questionnaire is administered, then proactively we would know where the individuals are, where their contact information is, and those questionnaires are then distributed to the respective health departments, health units, if you may, where those people, at least on their chart, indicate they reside. Doctor, you mentioned that um, you know we've got several people here who were in Egypt, and you, I think you said there may have been an event there. Do you know, like, if there's something that these people have in common? Do they all attend? I don't know. Maybe it was a wedding. Was it? That's our working, we have, uh, we've been asked by Health Canada to say, because their, their, their investigation with another country has another group saying they were also at something, they all came back at the same time as you notice. <clears throat> and uh, so we're trying to get that detail put together and it may be very informative in regards to that because uh, right now we have more cases than Egypt has. Okay, but what's the other country that's had a cluster of people from Egypt, you know? Um, Someone mentioned, but I'm not, I'm not going to be, it was just casually mentioned, so I don't want to quote it if I don't, haven't got it correctly. All right. So you think that there was something, like has anyone able, been able to ask these people? Like, we're, yeah, on, we're doing that now. What were you doing? You're doing that right now. Yeah, we're asking all our, uh, between York and Toronto Public Health, can you go back and ask those people? And uh, it's part of the investigative epidemiology. It was a single event in, in Egypt or the flight itself? That is the common It element. sounds like it was an event in Egypt. So just to be clear, you're asking individuals who have had recent travel from which countries to put themselves into isolation, so Iran and then certain parts of China? Hubei. Hubei problem. That was there. We've had that historically there. But that's it at this point. Yeah, so Iran's moved up to the same level as Hubei okay. at this time until we get a sense from the country of their understanding of 
how uh, the breadth and width of the impact on their country is and get their data and their systems up to run. So we just don't know right at the moment. Just touching on those kiosks, when do we expect that information to be put in there? Um, I think the, the Chief Public Health Officer may be making some announcement later today on that. It does take time to update those systems in there and to get the questionnaires administered. So it's not, um, it doesn't happen in an instant. So can you explain why we don't uh, have too much concern about the cases uh, in South Korea and Italy? Why Are you surprised that we don't have any cases related to these two countries yet? <coughs> I am surprised. Um, and, and maybe encouraged in a couple of ways. Um, if you look at the South Korean situation, uh, the, the government feels it's, it deals with uh, a couple of large gathering events in there, and they feel that they have worked at that because a large or half their cases come from uh, a certain group gathering, and they're looking at that. Um, so it may be contained in that way. So thus, thus far, they seem to be doing okay on that one. We have not had any cases yet reported. It is on our alert list. It's on level two. And North Italy is the same. Um, with the amount of travel back and forth, I would be expecting cases, unless the Italian government has been quite successful to limit it to northern Italy so far. Um, we are still watching and waiting, and if people feel they have come back and have signs or symptoms and are concerned they might have been exposed, um, it's the same as all those seven countries. If you've been to Singapore or Hong Kong and you think you might have been exposed and you feel signs and symptoms after you get back, uh, please call public health and uh, and go and get assessed. Uh, we would not discourage that. What is your advice on handshakes? Um, I know this was a question that came <coughs> up during SARS, and we've seen some big conferences um, starting to get canceled. Are you advising people change their behavior at all around uh, handshakes, particularly those maybe in jobs who have to do it frequently? Um, we, we have, <clears throat> just that people during flu season, we tend to not encourage that. Things I don't know if I'm, if you're going to shake my hand, you don't know what I did just before. And so as long as I have hand sanitizer afterwards, whatever, I mean, I trust you, you trust me. It depends on your familiarity in the group working there. We tend to say not usually, unless you're pretty sure, or you're going to be washing your hands afterwards and not go and touch your face and, and, and that kind of aspect there. So it's a, it's a behavioral thing that people do the elbow touch and different routines, uh, <clears throat> especially because if you're not sure, especially if you're traveling and you're in busy airports and big lineups and stuff, you're going to have to take your own precautions because you can't be sure the people in the crowd around and behind you, what, where they're from, what, what exposure they've had. So those are the things about being diligent on your own personal hygiene and behavior during that time, carrying well, small volumes and get through customs security <clears throat> of the hand sanitizer and that kind of stuff. So, or you can have the hand wipes, the cloth ones. So, and then wash your hands, of course, in the washer when you have a chance. So, I, I would generally say to discourage that in some settings, unless you know the setting quite well but, and your own methods of personal hygiene, monitor that, as you said, wash your hands frequently, all those things. And, and we've seen um, public transit systems taking some extra steps. Is that something you would recommend more transit systems look at, or is this something they should maybe be doing every flu season in general? Uh, every flu season, we haven't restricted the travel system. We told people that, one, if you're sick, stay home, cough in your sleeve, uh, all those kind of things of etiquette. We've, we've become known around Ontario people doing this. Ontarians are known for that. Um, and we haven't limited because, especially with corona, unlike flu, it's even more closer associations. So you'd have to be with someone or with it for a, a certain period of time, fairly close, which in some subway settings you could be. And you're going to have to... Uh, 
Of course, no one likes someone standing next to you and who's starting hacking and coughing. You can see everybody just moves away, and and and, and Ontarians are pretty are pretty strong on that, and they usually confront someone with who's undertaking that behavior. So they've they've taken the message pretty seriously. So cough etiquette's very important. So we haven't done full restriction. We'd rather have people take proper responsibility. Doctor, how I think you were next yeah. in there, sorry. Oh, so how about those people, because of the questionnaire, you fill it out like voluntarily, but uh, uh, for sure some people will hide the information, and how would our house unit to track down those people? Like, uh, I know through our interview with another uh, person, and she said uh, she knew um, somebody come from Hubei, even this family member being uh, it's one of the confirmed case but but she didn't uh, contact this our house unit this person still in the process to convince that person to contact this house unit so how do you deal with that situation <coughs> well there are always some individuals who may try and do that um, we found so far most are not that way um, usually if there's, uh, with Hubei and that, if you're showing your passport and it shows that's your place of residence, the customs uh, officer will pull you aside and say, where's the questionnaire? And you push it on the kiosk. If you don't, if you're caught and you did not deny, or you, you denied it, then you will be in difficulty with the customs officer. The same as to say, okay, your flight was from there to there, did you travel anywhere else? They can usually on that method there, they can see on your passport you went from this country to that country. It says, it looks like a few hours ago you were in some place. So where'd you travel from there? So <clears throat> as the, that's why they train up the, the officers. They know what to look for. And they say, well, you were supposed to declare that. And so uh, if people want to be deceptive in that, I guess they can try to be that way. But at the same time, they may do it at their own compromise if they get quite ill and their family members as well. So then they're not being responsible to themselves, but they're not really responsible for their family members. And that's the more concern, especially if you have some elderly people in your household who you give it to, they may not only just get sick, they may die. Because uh, it's that older group that's at risk and you need to take that seriously. It's not a matter of being deceptive. There's no penalty, the fact you get seen <coughs> and you get assessed because then you know better. Hello again, I'm Peter Van Dusen. We've been listening to an update from Ontario health officials on the COVID-19 virus. That's all for this edition of Primetime Politics on CPAC. Thanks for watching.